Hi, I'm your host Pratik Panda and you're listening to Impulse, the influencer marketing podcast by Philo. Here we talk to the best and brightest in influencer marketing to help answer all your questions from finding the right influencers to making sure you have the best influencer marketing strategy. So let's get started. Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of Impulse, the influencer marketing podcast. And joining today is Justin Levy. Justin is the senior director of influencer marketing and head of community at Demandbase, a smarter GTM company for B2B brands whose mission is to transform how B2B companies go to market. Justin is also the author of a book called Facebook Marketing, Designing Your Next Marketing Campaign. He also has a tremendous amount of experience in building successful communities. So today with him, we are going to talk about B2B influencer marketing, online communities, and so much more. Thank you so much for joining us, Justin. It's great to have you here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Awesome. Great. So, Right off the bat, one thing that I like to ask all of my guests, give me one controversial hot take on influencer marketing. I think a hot take or something controversial right now is the conversation between influencer and creator, right? And it's not that I think that there's not a difference because I do acknowledge that there is, but the word influencer has gotten a bad rap over time. Because I think where people see the delineation is that influencers just a shill for a company. And that, that's something that I have to debate with people from time to time. But they think that in quote unquote influencers a shill for a company, whereas a creator creates content and you know is then hired by companies to create content. The way that myself and I know plenty of other people that lead influencer marketing at their companies or may have it included as part of, say, social programs, they don't work with shills for their brand, right? But I do think that over the years, some celebrities and folks of that nature or brands that aren't as ethical maybe have paid people to be shills, to just spew their brand content and products without understanding of how they could work with that person more. So... I think that that debate's going to stay around, but I do think the issue at hand with that is that people tend to say that influencers are shills for companies or just say whatever the company tells them to or fill in the blank, right? And creators are somehow different. Hmm. That's interesting. And do you think that's a perception from the consumer side as well? So do you think it's affecting, like if you call yourself an influencer versus a creator, does it affect how your audience is viewing you? I think it can. Sure. Anyone can be a creator, right? I create, you create many listeners or people that will view this, create content. It can be blogs, podcasts, videos, LinkedIn content, whatever it may be. Some people may only create because they find joy in it and they have no intention on moving into, say, an influencer status or to potentially work with other brands or take sponsorships or advertising dollars or anything of that nature. There are plenty of people, though, that do reach a point in their career where they make the decision to associate themselves with brands, sponsorships for podcasts, pure influencer plays where you create a certain number of videos or involve yourself in their content. I also think that one of the things, 
And this can be consumer, like the end user or creator side of things. I think it applies to both is that at least as of now, we won't have, say, my title, right? We won't have a senior director of creators marketing or creator something, right? It just doesn't exist. The the market is influencer marketing. As a piece of that, or as a major driver, should be creators and should be the creator economy. I think that the end user benefits more when companies in individuals in similar roles or my role look at it as that they are working with creators, right? Not that I'm signing an influencer contract, that I am working with you as a creator so that we can drive a message to your audience that you and I agree on. That way, the end user benefits, right? The consumer benefits in that. And it doesn't ruin that creator, that influencer's reputation or taint it with their audience because they've built trust with them over time. Yeah, and trust is the essence of everything in this industry, right? So it matters a lot on whether the trust continues to be maintained or not. And this is an important piece. Absolutely. Great. A little bit of a segue into your background, right? And you studied criminal justice, sociology, and homeland security at university. How did you get into marketing? Yeah, so my undergrad was in criminal justice and sociology, always with a goal heading to federal law enforcement of some kind. I had the opportunity to be one of the first 20 to 25 people in the U.S. to be allowed to hold a master's degree in Homeland Security. At that time, currently in 2023, there's plenty of universities that have programs. But at that point in time, UConn was the first university selected by the Department of Homeland Security and the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California to put together this program. So in my first class, we had people that were part of the FBI's Joint Terrorism Task Force. We had people that were with the DEA, federal air marshals, people that provided executive security for huge corporations, right? Provided CEO type security. And it was something that I was deeply passionate about. And during my schooling, I was recruited by a federal agency. And throughout that process, we had certain conversations that led me to believe that I would be making certain decisions that I didn't know the answers to later in life, right? About the type of family I could have, what could be shared and when and how and things of that nature. So I started like most of us do, working for out of college type places, you know, my kind of first full time gigs and whatnot. And during that period of time, my best man and someone I'd grown up with had a Argentinian steakhouse. He had had the opportunity to buy it at a certain point. He bought it. And like most chefs in this world, if you know the restaurant world at all, most get the opportunity to buy or open their own place and don't understand the business side of it as well as they could. And so the restaurant was losing 20 to 30% month over month. He wasn't able to pay his bills. He wasn't able to take a salary for himself. And it was the best food you could ever try best steak. And he cooked every night over a wood fire grill. He cut all of his own meat. Everything was homemade and everything was over a wood fire grill so much so that 
his hands peeled from being over the wood all night, right? He had deep burn marks or dry skin. And at that time was when all these new things that would eventually be social networks really started to pop. So Twitter, Plurk, Friendster, Facebook, YouTube, MySpace was around already because we kind of all grew up with that a little bit. But you had all these networks that started to come to life. And well, I didn't know nothing about them, but we are also trying to figure out what this angle could potentially be to help. So we had made some really quick decisions. I wasn't considering myself a marketer by any means, but I did know that website that only had a PDF couldn't get traffic. Like you're not going to search. <laughs> like Google can't read a PDF, right? So we redesigned the website to make it more dynamic. We launched a third-party blog because I didn't think that people would want to come to a restaurant website blog because a first assumption, because I use myself as the use case, would think that it's going to be what our specials are tomorrow night or why should you visit us? So we made a foodie blog or blog for foodies and recruited people who were foodies to write for it. And then we started a YouTube show. So it was a weekly show where we taught people how to do chefy things, right? How to fire roast tomatoes, how to peel onions, how to you know be able to go to Costco and cut your own steak down into the different pieces. What were the different pieces? And it started to get traction. And suddenly the restaurant turned around, it went into the black and ended up being named a top steakhouse in Western Mass for five years in a row. Started And that kind of brought it onto the radar of mainstream media case studies. And that is what started me down this path from <laughs> criminal justice, intelligence services, federal law enforcement, this hard pivot to what would become social media. Got it. And from that pivot, from a B2C style social media to now what you're doing on the B2B marketing side, let's dive in a little bit deeper there. As far as B2B influencer marketing is concerned, what are some distinct differences if you compare it with the B2C style of influencer marketing that most of us are familiar with or we notice more often online? Yeah, I think that there's one similarity and there's one kind of glaring difference, right? So the similarity is that you still have a decision maker on the end. B2B isn't two logos talking to one another, right? I think we all know that, can all agree to that. In B2C, you're just trying to convince one other person. If I'm Sony, I'm trying to convince you why you should buy that 85-inch TV. Here's all the features here, like... 10 people that all know what they're talking about in electronics are telling you why this is better than this other brand TV. In B2B, the decision-making group is larger, depending on the deal size and the size of company, product and everything, but it can be 5, 10, 15 plus people. And that could range anywhere, say, from a director to the C-suite, CFO, CRO, what have you. Your size of influence is different. The huge difference is that B2B doesn't have physical product, right? I can't send you something to physically review and create content from. So when I was on the agency side, we did an influencer campaign with dad bloggers and Sony products. Sony had approached us, said, you know, we have all these cool new toys and we want people to try them. 
great. We designed experiences. We got the five dads. We designed experiences, sent them the product and said, have this experience, have a movie night. And we gave them Blockbuster when that was a thing, you know, gift cards and all that. Enjoy this and then create content around it. You can't do that on the B2B side, right? So there's other methods that you can take. But I think that that's one of the glaring differences is that you don't have a physical product that you can send the influencer. But you do have sort of an online version in most cases, right? A B2B product could have a trial or a way to experience the product. And there are a lot of creators who are creating content around reviewing such products as well, right? Do you think that's a necessary thing though? Like, is it necessary for the creator to be able to work with you effectively only if they are able to try the product? Or are there some other ways in which we can engage as well as a brand? Well, I can tell you that in my time here at Demandbase, we have never given product to a single influencer that I've worked with, and we've run dozens of programs. So yes, you can engage with influencers without a trial, because if you had to have a trial, then I haven't done my job in the past few years. Yeah. So let's dive a little bit deeper, right? Let's maybe take an example out of that, because you know I've been talking to a lot of B2B marketers who are now suddenly starting to look at influencer marketing as a viable channel for B2B marketing as well. And, you know, more often than not, what they ask me is, hey, I mean, my product doesn't have a free trial kind of a method because by default, what they start thinking is, okay, I need to give access to the creator. They are going to sign up and try using the product. While they're using the product, they create an opinion and content piece around the product. And that's what gets posted online. So let's assume that that's either not something that your product does or you just don't want to give access to a trial because that's not the way you want it to do. Can you tell us a few examples of some demand-based campaigns maybe where you've not had to share access and you've said you don't do that anyway? What kind of campaigns do you plan out with these creators? What is the messaging idea? What is the objective of the campaign? Yeah, absolutely. And for us, and I think this applies to a lot of companies, right? The cost of setting up a trial And the needed knowledge of the product is so much that it actually would deter an influencer or a creator, right? And that's some of the reason why. It's not that we don't want to. It's that it would not help if I gave you a trial today. You get in the tool and say, I don't understand. And we have to put so many resources to it. And you may not care about it at that point. Plus, in my viewpoint, and this will dovetail into examples, but in my viewpoint, nobody wants to be pitched on product. People that do physical on the B2C side or that do the open and box reviews and stuff like that, yes, they want to receive the new product that the companies benefit from that. But generally speaking, it doesn't help if I came to you and said, we have a new product or a new feature, and I want you to create content out of it. You'd be like, no, because why do you care? And why would your audience care? So we do a couple different things. One, we do a few top lists per year. So those are recognitions of people. We are going to be publishing our second annual 100 Most Powerful Women in Sales list here soon. And we've done other similar lists. When we do those, a lot of people don't like lists, right? They think that they're just a clickbait. And some lists are. Some people go and just 
the top 100 people buy followers on LinkedIn. And it's like, those people have no association to your brand. None. Maybe one person or 10 people on that list or something will go, ooh, I was named to a list because I was on the list with this famous person. Not because I know who your brand is or I really care. So we do a lot of research. There's really a handful of categories that we use and we look at relevancy to the conversations and reach and engagement and content creation and a bunch of things, diversity and what have you. So with those lists, we'll create custom social cards for these people and then we'll reach out to each one of them. So when the 100 women list is published, I will send out 100 individual emails to those women with their social cards attached, some messaging, some congratulations and what have you. And then we'll have two to four blog posts. We'll have a few other digital touch points. Inevitably, within minutes of us starting that outreach, actually, while I'm in the middle of it, people start to update their LinkedIn bios and their headers and, you know, the little about section on LinkedIn, not the actual section where you can write a lot, the headline, and they'll start to update it. Demand-based 2023 most powerful woman or, you know, whatever, because it's true recognition for them. So that's one thing. We've either built new relationships thanks to that, or we've reinforced existing relationships with those folks. You can take that one step further though. And in this case, I'll wait two to three weeks or so kind of let that die down because you still have people filtering in. Maybe they're on vacation or what have you. I'll go back out and ask these women, we want you to be part of an ebook. Can you please give your two-minute thought to this, your two-minute reply? It'll be something that matters to us and is relevant to them. We'll get typically with that model a 30% hit rate or so. So last year out of 100 women, we had 30 women reply. We created an ebook out of that and we actually published it. We'll do it this year in October for Women in Sales Month. So you're taking advantage of that, which is only good by them. But then you go back out again with, in this case, 30 more custom cards that had their quote on it. So now you've given them two opportunities to share something that matters to them. As a brand, you've now had Let's even say 80 women shared initially and then 30 in this list. So you've had 110 external touch points now times that entire reach times all those numbers. So that's the blood, sweat and tears version. Obviously, there's paid influencer programs that you can do around content creation, you know, X number of videos, video interviews, articles, you know, co-created content. And then something I've been doing a lot of lately is direct mail programs. So one that we just did was we sent unicorn pinatas to about 65 people. And the message inside of it was, wouldn't it be great if you had a unicorn ad solution? Now, this is the direct product pitch, but subtle because it was around our advertising solution that we wanted to draw more attention around. But it was written and done in a way that if you're in tech, you know what a unicorn is. And it's a play on it, right? A unicorn emoji, the pinata, all this stuff. If you got an email like that, you're going to respond to it. It's playful enough. Why wouldn't you respond to it? And then as part of that, the prompt was, if you share it on LinkedIn and you tag us, we'll send you a half dozen Grove cookies. Now, 
anyone that knows anything on LinkedIn right now in June of 2023 knows how Grayson and his wife, Marie, are killing it on LinkedIn with their cookies. They have created FOMO. Everyone wants them. They're across every direct mail provider there is. So I had people write back to me or share saying, I'm sharing this because I have FOMO and I want my Grove cookies. But then similar to the list, you get two touch points out of it because someone gets it and they're like, unicorn pinata, like the man base is out of their mind, but this is so cool. But then they get the cookies. So then they show it again. This is my first time ever trying these cookies. They are so good. Now you just got two for the price of one, right? So those are probably the three buckets I would say that we use often that anyone can take that and replicate themselves depending on team size or budget. I think that was very, very good examples and definitely something that people should try out. Very spot on where the intent is not to sell product all the time, right? And the intent is to add value and recognize people for what they are doing. And in the process, there is some visibility for your brand. So on the face of it, it seems like a great campaign. It will get you a lot of visibility, a lot of shares, likes, comments. So definitely a lot of visibility for demand base. Were you able to measure any conversions out of the campaign? Was it even top of mind for you to measure conversions here? Or was it purely like, okay, let's go build brand? Yes, Sam, no. So what I can tell you is that with our lists and with the different campaigns, depending on the size of the campaigns, our programs will usually be in the top five, if not higher, for source traffic to our website for the first few weeks, right? So some of that is sheer size. You are actively reaching out to, in the example I provided, a hundred women, a hundred people saying, here, you've been recognized. Here's a link. They share it with their 5,000, 10,000, 100,000 followers. It's a lot of inbound traffic. That's very successful, right? Because once we capture them on the website, maybe they do read the blog post and leave. That's fine. Or they read the blog post, they click on this link, they go here, they do this, and they do other things. So that's number one. And that's very high top of funnel in the sense, you know, really brand awareness and brand reinforcement. We have started to build the muscle and started to look at pipeline contribution with our programs because we don't go out solely to prospects and customers. If a prospect or a customer is included, great. If not, we are literally dealing with it with blinders on. Are they influential within their community? But we have seen pipeline influence from these campaigns that we've been able to track directly back. Got it. Makes sense. And all the examples that you gave also, great examples. One thing that I'm intrigued about is it's not easy, right? Like trying to put all of these things together and making sure that it's going to work is a lot of effort, right? And what does the team look like? How long do you guys spend planning one campaign? How many such campaigns do you do in a year? Tell us a little bit more. So I have a team of three people and then obviously myself, And I tend to set way too high of a bar and the more successful it is, the more the organization asks. So we've already run two physical campaigns and three lists this year, but those were smaller lists. They were in the range of say 25 or so per list. And then coming up later on this year, we have two top 100 lists and a third project that's a physical touch point with 
75 to 100 people that we've already been working on for probably two months now because it's that much of a heavy lift because it's a very, very custom piece. Got it. Makes sense. Cool. So let's dive a little bit on the community piece, right? And we'll come back to the B2B influencer marketing bit again. But you run this successful community. Tell us a little bit more about the community. Why did you start it? What is it called? Who are the people on it? And how is it helping? Yeah, so we run a community called Revenue Circle. It's a free Slack-based community. And it's for sales and marketing executives. So VP and above up to, you know, CRO, CSO, CMO level. And we run it as essentially a demand-based powered community. That's how I refer to it as. Because we have our customer community that's run by someone else on our marketing team. Obviously, that's where customers get together and have conversations and our product marketing teams. And when we launch product, they hold events and what have you. This is a third-party community where the focus is not on demand-based. It's another executive engagement touch point for us, of which we have several executive engagement touch points. But this is one for us where you know, our goal is to engage with those personas and everything from silly questions of the day to drive engagement. Like, does pineapple belong on pizza? And it absolutely does. I will fight anyone that tells me it doesn't to in-person events like happy hours to virtual events, virtual kind of webinars on topics like generative AI and dark social and the state of GTM and partner-led growth and ABM and all these topics that are of interest. And then the other big part that we do separate from what other communities do is that we pay to have industry thought leaders active within the community. And it's to create content that's of value to the community. So everything we do is of value to them, not what we want. You know, we have people, thought leaders in there to help the community members drive their personal brands and build their personal brands and engage with people in a way that they may never be able to really be one-on-one with that person because they're a big keynote speaker at conferences and things of that nature. So anything to drive value for the community. Got it. And it seems pretty obvious that a lot of your customers might also be on this community because it's the same target persona. Yeah, we do have customers and prospects that are in the community. And, you know, I have conversations with our sales team on an as needed basis, but we certainly have people that have just come in as recommendations or have heard of a community or listened to a podcast or you know, something of that nature and have reached out to become a member. Got it. I'm going to reach out to become a member. And on that note, you also mentioned a little bit about sales, right? Like one of the things that we as marketers also try to deal with on a daily basis is supporting sales is one of our primary purposes, obviously. But at the same time, a lot of times when you're trying to build things like community, right, you as a marketer, want to do an honest effort towards building community. And like you said, the main thing is providing value. And that means that you have to prevent yourself in trying to oversell your own product or brand, right? Do you get pushed by sales a little bit that, hey, I mean, there's a big audience there. I need more leads this month. Let's go do a shout out about this. No, never. It is very much purpose-built 
to be hands-off when it comes about demand-based wares. We will only promote things in that community if it's of value and benefit to the community members. So if we promote or back a study of some kind, right? State of GTM 2023, I don't know. You know, it's not something that we've done, but like, let's call it that, right? And we funded the study. I would promote that because it's helpful information for that community. Something like Demandbase announced this today, I won't promote. And nor am I asked to promote. People seem to have an understanding of that. Now, naturally, some community members may come in and congratulate the company, congratulate us, but it's unprompted. It's that they saw the news somewhere else. Got it. Coming back to the B2B influencer marketing part, right? It's definitely something that's picking up as a hot channel. If somebody's starting out with B2B influencer marketing, do you have some tips and advice on what to take care of? Yeah, I would say the biggest thing is to focus on building relationships, maintaining those relationships, and reinforcing them with the creators and influencers that you're going to want to work with. You know, one of the things that I see happen with way too many companies and individuals at those companies, right? Someone has responsibility for influencer marketing is that they believe that the influencer relationship is only a one-way street. So you're going to do what I pay you to do or what we agree for you to do, or I'm going to ask you for a favor and I'm never going to help you myself. So, you know, hey, yeah, we worked on this campaign together. Can you share the video out, for example, with your community? Well, the brand should also be sharing out that video, should be sharing out their other content, should be tagging them because the brand also has community members that are in a sphere of influence to that creator. So too many people look at influencers or creators or what have you, their relationship as a one-way street. That's absolutely wrong. And secondly, like I said, focus on the maintenance and building of relationships. And then I would say not to get caught up in the big names. Everyone wants, say, for example, Gary Vaynerchuk. And Gary is a great guy. I've been fortunate enough to know him for about 15 years. But, you know, it's hard to get in touch with him. He's very, very busy. And he just has such a structure around him and a cost associated with that, that to get him to tweet your brand isn't going to happen, right? So I think it's an unrealistic expectation. Instead, look at creators that are more focused in your industry They don't have to have tens of thousands of community members or hundreds of thousands of followers or more. They may have a thousand followers, but those thousand followers are the exact ICP for you. So those are the people you should be trying to build a relationship with, not the Garys of the world. If that opportunity presents itself, of course, (laughs) you don't say no to it, but Try to focus on the people that are most likely to influence your ICP. Got it. And that definitely makes sense. And from what you mentioned, both the points, I have two follow-up questions. One is, let's say this situation, and somebody asked me this recently, let's say you've convinced your C-suite and you're going to try out your first influencer marketing campaign. And let's say you have a $25,000 budget. One thought process is, let me try to get as many influencers on board and try to make a lot of noise about my brand. 
The other approach is I'm going to identify a few, but I'm going to create a deeper, more longer term partnership with them over three months, six months. It might still fail or it might work, but I'm going to work with a smaller, more focused bunch. And that means that they might put in a lot more effort as well. Do you have a suggestion or something that you would want to say and which approach might be better? Is actually one better than the other? I think it's campaign-based, right? I think that it has to always be campaign-based and based on what the goal of that campaign is going to be. And you need to test every relationship too, right? I wouldn't go into a 12-month contract with someone if it's an untested relationship. But if you have something that's supposed to be a long tail effort or a kind of rolling effort, you know, we have certain campaigns that are long tail approaches. We had a big splash, but then we want the long tail for the rest of the year or something like that. You might work on a larger campaign now if it's budget-based. And I am a big proponent of organic campaigns where you don't put money behind them. But let's assume the budget. You might put a larger budget now because you are looking for that big splash. So you want a handful of influencers that have influence that hit your ICP that also have a large following. Great. You make that big splash. Hopefully your campaign's successful, but then you need to keep that campaign, those lights on for six more months, say. Then you need to become more targeted in who you're going to work with over that period of time that's going to deliver the best results. So made up numbers here. You may have 15 influencers for the launch, but then choose five that you're going to work with for the rest of the year on very specific campaigns or very specific content or what have you. Measuring along the way, right? What's their cost? What is their engagement? For paid campaigns, I measure something called CPE. It's cost per engagement. I'm a huge fan of the metric because it allows you to normalize everything, which is really hard in influencer marketing on the paid side. So I can take the cost of every single individual, all their engagement, and understand how much each one costs. Got it. And I think that's great advice. And the second thing I wanted to ask you about is, let's say we go back to your point around not necessarily chasing the big names, but finding those small micro creators, nano creators who have the exact ICP that you're looking for, especially in the B2B influencer marketing segment. How do you go find these people? Are there tools that you use or you rely on things like LinkedIn? What's the best way to discover these influencers? I mean, it comes down to if you have the budget, right? And where that falls. So LinkedIn for B2B is the place to go search, right? There are a lot of other signals that you can go search, but for sake of argument, LinkedIn and understanding how to search it based on, are you looking at a certain title and above? So decision maker, okay, that's going to be director and above certain titles, locations, types of people, like are they larger enterprise or are they at mid-market? Are they SMB? Do you not want SMB? Whatever. You can do a pretty decent searches within LinkedIn. A lot of that's going to be one-to-one though because of LinkedIn's API. So great, I find this list of 100 people. I have to manually now search it to see do they fit my four or five pieces of criteria? Are they that title? What's their reach look like? Are they active in conversation? So that's possible. There are tools out there as well. One that's one of my favorites, Analytica. They allow for something similar 
just in a tool. So you can go and say, I'm looking for influencers that have a reach of 500 to 10,000, you know, that are on these topics, A, B, and C, and that are at decision maker and above. Little tweaks on that, but essentially the same, that. And their tool will deliver back that list. And a lot of tools are like this. And then you tweak that, you might tag them, move them around, kind of develop your outreach list. All right. Makes sense. I think that is spot on and definitely very, very helpful. As we get closer to wrapping this up, I'm going to ask you a fun question. If you were to take an influencer out to lunch, who would that person be and why? I'm fortunate in my career to have had the opportunity to become friends with a lot of the influencers that we all know in B2B. One of my favorite humans in the entire world is Anne Hanley. She's chief content officer for Marketing Profs, best-selling author. Most people know who she is. We do nothing but laugh and joke and have a great time when we're together. And she's a smart human being and always has crazy ideas that usually I'll go implement and we create a lot of fun content together. So it's always a great time when I can spend time with Anne. Awesome. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for sharing that. And thanks a ton for spending so much time with us. I think this was an incredible conversation. A lot of takeaways from this, a lot of actionable takeaways also that if you are starting out in influencer marketing or if you've played around with it for a fair amount of time as well, I think you've shared some great ideas that people could really try to replicate for their brand. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Impulse, the influencer marketing podcast is brought to you by Philo. Philo is the easiest way to get access to authenticated creator data from hundreds of different platforms. To know more about Philo, visit getphilo.com. That's get, P-H-Y-L-L-O.com. Also, make sure to search for Influencer Marketing Podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or any of your favorite podcast listening platforms. And don't forget to click subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Philo, thank you so much for listening.